Welcome back, brothers and sisters from around the world. And I hope that you've been finding the classes so far interesting and helpful. Uh, even if this is an area that you know something about, I hope that you've been able to learn um, some uh, new ideas, maybe have a different opinion of a few uh, Quranic verses, and just a few tips on how to help our Muslim friends begin to investigate their own religion so that they can have a, a deeper um, understanding of their own religion and, and also be somewhat troubled by their own religion. And then, of course, to provide them with the um, the alternative which is only found in the wonderful New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are going to uh, really zero in now and look at marriage in Islam. We're going to really look at Muhammad as, as a role model of marriage. Um, Muslims think he is the role model for marriage and so we're going to unpack Muhammad's marriages. And Before we do that I'd like us to just look a little, a little bit deeper into the whole concept of marriage in the Quran. Now, a few uh, months ago, I was sitting down with my Quranic, uh, my Quran teacher. I'm learning Quranic Arabic so that I can be a better evangelist among Muslims. And as I sat down with my um, Egyptian uh, Quranic teacher, and we were going through some of these verses, she began to unpack um, the actual meanings behind some of the verses on marriage in the Quran, in Islamic literature, in, uh, in, the, theo in the writings of the theologians of Islam. And there's a very interesting word that you will hear bandied around um, in all the Islamic literature when it comes to marriage. And the term that's often used is nikah. Um, but what most people don't realize about this term is that it has connotations to it that um, whilst there is some truth to them, it actually becomes a little bit troubling. So let me explain. There's two words that could be, well, it's probably more than two words, but there's two main words that could be used in the Arabic when it comes to marriage. The two words that often use is either nikah or zawaj. Those are the two Arabic terms that could be used. And the Quran more often than not uses nikah. You might think, might think oh, well, Muslims say that's marriage. But actually, and, I, and it's going to get a bit crude here, this is not me, this is what the term means. In English, and I'm not going to say the word on air, but in English, the term is the F word. That's just, you know, I hope you understand what I'm saying by that. In English, it is a very sexualized word, but it is a crude sexualized word. And it is not a word that would really encompass all that marriage is about. Uh, and so a lot of people don't understand that when Muslims deep down in their minds and in their psyche, when they're talking about marriage, it is actually really only talking about one area of marriage. And it isn't just talking about an area of marriage that even the Bible would say is a beautiful part of marriage, which is the whole intimacy between a husband and wife, the sexual intimacy. It is actually talking about almost a crude way of looking at that whole side of marriage. It is a crude, it is a, it is a cheap way to, to look at marriage. And it's always uh, for the man, for the woman, to F the woman, and that is in its crudest form what it means. So it can be quite hard to raise this with your Muslim friends, but I think you need to work it through with them. I think it's so important for Muslims to understand that even the terms that they use when it comes to marriage and it comes to one of the building blocks of family and society has this connotation that can be so unhelpful and un uh, unhealthy for a good, uh, strong, uh, intimate marriage. So um, let me give you two examples. In Surah 4.3, and we've already looked at Surah 4.3, it says this, if you fear that you shall be able to deal 
um, not be able to deal justly with the orphans, marry, and the term is nikah. So that's the, the word that is in English, the F word. Nikah, women of your choice, two, three, or four. What about Surah 3353? And when you ask, and it's talking about Muhammad's wives, uh, for anything you want, ask them from before screen or uh, behind a screen. That makes it greater puri- purity for their hearts and your hearts. So it's the idea that you can't be pure just when you're in the presence of a woman. And especially with Muhammad's wives, they had to ask from behind a screen. And so this is the ideas of gender segregation. And it says, nor is it right for you that you should anoint Allah's messenger or that you should marry, and the term is nikah, again, that word. Um, you should not marry his wives after him at any time. So it's just a very troubling view of, of again, a man and woman and marriage, even down to this most, uh, uh, most private part of marriage. And um, you compare that whole almost sexualized way of how men and women are supposed to interact. Uh, and, um, and of course, this is outside of, of, of marriage. Um, men and women are kept separate just because they're trying to protect um, people from any sort of um, sexual temptation. Now, I'm all for that, to protect ourselves against sexual temptation. But the point I'm making here is that in the whole society of Islamic life, if you look at the Muslim world or countries where there's a majority Muslim population, you will see on the whole a lot more gender segregation. And when Islamic law and the Quran is, per, is really implemented, you will see a, a gender segregation. Men and women are separated. And it's all to do with this whole point that the idea that man and woman cannot possibly be in the same room without there being some sort of sexual tension. That's the opposite of the Bible. The Bible clearly says in 1 Timothy 5 um, verse 2 that we are to treat um, men, I'm to treat them as my brothers, and uh, men, uh, I'm to treat men as my brothers, and men are to treat me as their sister. And that's how the Bible tells us we are to be a family together. We are a family. We are the eternal family together. And it's very important as Christians we see that. That's just not a concept in Islamic terms. But it doesn't just start with those outside of the marriage. It's even within the marriage. It's everything is seen in a purely sexualized manner. And it can be quite troubling when you begin to investigate this whole area and unpack the, the meanings behind the very words that Muslims use all the time in their, their, their write-ups and their, their theology on this important topic. So we saw in, the, in previous programs that Muhammad is considered the role model of all time. We saw that whatever Muhammad and, his, and Allah choose, we have no choice in the matter, Surah 33. We saw that um, if um, you have to obey Muhammad and you have to obey Allah, it's like Muhammad and Allah are on the same level. They're all, they're, it's almost as if Muhammad is divine. So we're now going to look at Muhammad himself. We're going to look at Muhammad's uh, interactions with women. We're going to see um, how he treated his wives. We're going to see how uh, Muhammad got his wives. And we're going to ask the question, if this man truly is an example, not only for today, but was he even an example for the seventh century when Muslims claimed that he lived? And I take it one step further. You have Jesus who who came 700 years before him. Um, You have Muhammad who came in the mid or early uh, seventh century. And then of course you have Muslims today. So is he a model for today? 
Is he, was he a role model for the seventh century? Was he a role model for 2,000 years ago? And then compare it to Jesus. See, one of the things you find with Muslims when they begin to look at Muhammad and really take their story seriously, and they began to see how uh, Muhammad, uh, they read their stories and they see what Muhammad did with women and especially his wives. They begin to say, well, okay, okay, I see that it's not so good compared to today. But they say, but for that time, he actually brought about a, a complete change. He brought about um, an ennoblement and he was protecting these women. And I say, well, that's interesting because I happen to follow someone which this book talks about, this wonderful Bible. I happen to follow someone who existed 700 years before Muhammad. And I tell you, the, the way he treated women is not only relevant for the 7th century, it is relevant for today. That's the big difference. So Muhammad, we will find, is not only is he not relevant for the 7th century, he's not relevant even for Jesus' time, and he is certainly not relevant for today. Well, let's support what I say. I can't make a claim unless I back it up. And that's one of the big challenges when we are working with Muslims. When we look at uh, one of their claims, we have to ask them to back up a claim. One of the mistakes that many Christians have made as they, as they talk with Muslims is that they will often uh, just hear their Muslim friend talk about it and then they just accept what their Muslim friend says. They don't question their Muslim friend. Uh, they don't um, challenge what their Muslim friend is saying. They don't think to help their Muslim friend rethink through their position. And they just accept whatever the Muslim friend says. So what I want us to do is that not only when Muslims make a claim do we want to help them to challenge their own position. When we make claims, we need to make sure we can support our position. We need to make sure we can support our ideas. And so that's what we're going to do now. So here's the Muslim apologetic. This is just a mixture of different ideas that um, Muslims have come up, and um, this is what I've heard them say to me before. So, um, and just before we move on, every example I'm going to use now comes from the Muslim traditions. They come from um, the Sirat Rasulullah, they come from the Hadith, the Saints of Muhammad. They come from the Quran, and they come from the Tafsir, the exegetes. So everything comes from Islamic literature. So we're going to support everything we say, and our critique is going to be a critique of their sources, a critique of their text. So let's go to what the Muslim apologists say. First of all, Muhammad married women to protect them. That's the big claim. Muhammad was protecting the vulnerable women of his time, young women and uh, widows and, uh, and so on. And then he married them to form alliances. So he wasn't lustful man. He was forming alliances. And this is one of the main reasons for, for his marriages. It was forming alliances with neighbors, neighboring tribes, um, with, with um, the people that they were, were coming into contact with. Of course, in the stories about his marriages, in the modern um, day stories of his marriages, they will leave out the fact that they were at war with the tribes. They were, the reason they had to do alliances was because they were trying to appease each other or they controlled a tribe and then the tribe gave their daughters to Muhammad when they came in and took control of a tribe. More of that um, in a minute. They say he was not a, 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 an overly uh, lustful man. He was a good man. He was a pure man. Um, he sought to bring about the emancipation of women. In fact, I remember listening to uh, a modernist woman once, and she said, Muhammad is the greatest feminist of all time. She was a feminist. And I thought, this, I don't think she's actually read her book. For her to make such a claim, I don't think she's actually read this book. And she certainly has not read the biography of Muhammad. 
And then, of course, as we talked about before in previous um, classes, you, you will hear uh, you will hear the claim that um, you had the time of ignorance before Islam, and that was such a terrible time. We're going to look more of that in the next session. We have the time of ignorance, and then um, you move into the time of Islam, the Rashidun period, the golden period of Islam, from Muhammad and then the four rightly golden caliphs, um, oh, right, rightly guided caliphs. And, and you will see um, how he brought about this wonderful... Uh, ennoblement of woman. So I, I listened to what they say and then thought, okay, let's look at his wives. Let's look at his wives. Well, there are two wives that are put up on a pedestal. The first one is Khadija. She is the first wife. Then you have Aisha. She is his youngest wife. She is the wife that, um, that uh, he, he married her when she was six or seven and then consummated it when she was nine. And they are put up as the women to emulate, the women that uh, show this ennoblement of woman. And I say, oh, that's very interesting uh, that you choose Khadija. Khadija is that first wife. Then I'll say to my Muslim friend when they mention Khadija, I say, okay, wasn't Khadija pre-Islamic? Didn't Khadija come before Islam? Wasn't she the wife that he had who was much older than him? She was a businesswoman. She had a caravan. And she was a trader, a caravan of camels. She was a trader. She was a wealthy woman. She had freedom. She was a woman of respect and, and, and people knew her. And he, um, she was his boss. She was Muhammad's boss and much older than him. And he married her. And when he was married to her, he didn't look at any other woman. He didn't marry any other woman. It was almost as if she, he was under her authority. But she was the kind of woman that we see in pre-Islamic times. Now, I'm not going to say any more about that in this session. We're going to do that in the next one. But just hold that thought. But the first thing I say to Muslims, Khadija represents the pre-Islamic woman, not the woman of Islam. And some more progressive Muslim women will actually admit, Fatima Manisi, Leila Ahmad, these are um, Arabists who have, are critical of their own tr historical tradition. And they say, and um, they, uh, they admit that actually the, time, the, the, the scenario that Muslims make of the time before Islam is not as bad as Muslims um, try to make out. And, um, it, and, and Khadija doesn't necessarily represent the kind of woman that um, Islam has made woman today. In fact, Aisha is more like the kind of woman that Islam made today. When Aisha was brought into Muhammad's family after Khadija died, Aisha was the young girl, as we've already said. Aisha was one of the first wives, and, and it seems that when Khadija died, Muhammad quickly married in, in fairly quick succession quite a lot of women, and they were mostly young. All of them were young, apart from one or two, and I'll explain that in a minute. Aisha was his favorite wife. He has always been no known to have his, a favorite wife. Fascinating, because when you show that from the Islamic literature, take them to Surah 4.3. Doesn't Surah 4.3 say that you can marry four women, but you have to treat them equally? Doesn't it say that? Which means then Muhammad is going against his own tradition. He's going against his own book, his own Quran. Now, the Muslim might take you to that verse further on in the chapter that says you can't possibly treat your wives equally as a, as a get-out clause. And certainly, as we've seen before, it looks like Allah does try to come to please uh, Muhammad um, when he's having, especially in his domestic um, household, in his domestic situations. We'll look at that a little bit as well.
So Khadija dies, and then there is a woman who is married to a Christian. What kind of Christian that is, I don't know. But he's married to a Christian, and she becomes a Muslim. And because she's married to the Christian, the marriage is annulled. She becomes a Muslim, and she marries Muhammad. This is quite a sad story. Um, when Sa'uda became much older, she was in her 40s, my age, um, he, she was fat and she was unattractive. Um, he lost interest in her, um, and the, the, the idea is that it was sexual interest in her. And so in order for her not to be cast off, she was afraid she was going to get cast off, uh, she went to Muhammad and she said, Oh, Muhammad, um, please maintain me. Please keep me. Keep me on as your wife. And so if, if he was to keep it on his wife, and then she said, I would give my night, my time that you come to me, to someone else, to the other wives. And that's what they did. And that's how Sa'uda was kept. That's how Sa'uda was not cast off, just because in his eyes, um, she had become old and ugly. And that's the way he saw it. Compare that with Christian marriage. Compare that with what both the Old and New Testament say, how it is lifelong faithfulness and how you see beauty in the other, even if you're not in your prime when you were much younger. You see the beauty and the maturity um, grow as you get older in good Christian marriage. So it's a total different concept of, of what marriage, love and attractiveness and all that all means. So Aisha, this is a troubling story. Many people have heard of Aisha. And um, there's all sorts of um, strange stories about, there's a story of where in Sahih Bukhari, um, where she was playing with her dolls um, and she was very afraid and um, Muhammad came to take her for the marriage and she was afraid and she was crying and she was, it looked like she was almost having a, um, a sort of an attack of some sort if you read between the lines. And that's something you must do when you read the traditions of Islam. Every time you pick up the hadith, the sayings of Muhammad, read between the lines. There is so much information left unsaid, but it's profound when you begin to see what was happening behind the scenes in the lives of Muhammad's family. Deeply troubling when it comes to his wives and, and, um, and the whole domestic situation of Muhammad. Now, there's a very disturbing, very troubling uh, hadith, Sahih Muslim, volume 8, that says uh, the Muslims are talking to Muhammad about who to marry using the nikah word. And um, he often had deep, very uh, deep conversations on these issues with his, his companions. And he, t he advises his men, he says, marry young brides so you can play with them. And the, 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 con the connotation is sexually. Again, it just seems very, everything to do with his desires. Not really much to do with loving the woman uh, or protecting the woman or even seeing sexual uh, desires in a healthy, uh, loving relationship. That's not really part of the package when it comes to Islam. It's very much a part of the package when it comes to the Bible. Uh, there's a very troubling verse in the Quran, and that is in Surah 66, in Surah, um, Surah 65, verse 4. And in Surah 65, verse 4, it, it, there is a verse in there that is hotly debated in the Muslim world. But it talks about uh, prepubescent girls, girls who have not started their menstruation. And again, I apologize for getting gritty, but we need to talk about these things um, to really understand how, the, how Islam uh, views women uh, and so on. 
And so there's these prepubescent girls, and it seems to imply that women who have not started their menstruation, or girls who have not started their menstruation, can be married. There's a debate in, in Muslim circles about that. However, in Saudi Arabia, in 2012, so that's not very long ago, in 2012 in Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, you, you find um, one of the top clerics of the land said and uh, made the ruling that you can marry girls in the cradle. However, you can't sleep with them yet, but you are then allowed to actually sleep with them um, at the point of when she can bear your weight. Then you can sleep with her. That could be quite a young girl. That could be a child. And so that's in Saudi Arabia um, just in the last few years. Very, very troubling. Then you have this, this little girl, Aisha. She's nine years old when he consummates the marriage. And um, you see stories of her watching as Muhammad began to add more wives to his basically harem and he adds all these wives to his um, his family and you see stories of her peeking out and she's looking and she's getting a bit troubled when she sees the beautiful wife called Duraya, a stunning wife comes in Safia is another stunning wife and she's jealous it says and my heart was moved to jealousy she says and so there's all there's all sorts of troubling emotional issues going in in the lives and the hearts of these these young women that Muhammad is adding to his um, his brood of women his his group of women. Then there's more women, and I'm not going to go through every one, but I just want to pull out some of the main ones. You have Hafsa, who apparently was the one who received the Quran um, with under Uthman, and then she put it under her bed for some reason. Most Muslims wouldn't do that today. And um, there's, she was the one who was the custodian of the Quran. So some Muslims might revere her because of that. You have um, a couple of ladies called Zainab. And if we talked about earlier uh, of Zainab, who was his adopted son, Zayed's uh, son, that was his son, his adopted son's wife. And of course, Allah came and helped him, help the son to divorce the wife, and then uh, helped uh, Muhammad to then marry the wife. And that's a quite a troubling story that we've already looked at in Surah 33. Here's a really troubling uh, story of Rehana. Rehana was a Jewess. She was probably 15. She was quite young. And she, this was part of the raid against Banu Quraiza. And uh, just to, as an aside, uh, when you read the stories of Muhammad, when you read the biographies of Muhammad, you will um, see that one of the biographies, this is Al-Waqidi's biography. So you have Ibn Hisham, and then you have Al-Waqidi that came a bit later. And Awakidi's biography is called uh, the Maghazi, the raids. That's what it means. It means raids or raider. So Muhammad is the raider. Muhammad is moving into these tribes. And as he moves into the tribes with his men, him and his men are discussing what they can do with these women that they have captured. They're discussing if they um, should uh, sleep with these women or if they should leave them. And uh, there's one story where they're thinking, oh, well, the husbands are around. Should we really do this? And then always discussing with Muhammad what's the right thing to do. Very sadly, Muhammad always gives them the ability and the right to take the women as concubines and slaves. Um, and sometimes has killed the wives, uh, in, uh, uh, to, uh, the women, not the wives, has killed the wives' husbands in order to do that. Well, Rehana was one of these, uh, was a Jewess, and he killed many, many men of her tribe. He slaughtered them, and, um, and she, was, uh, she was taken um, in as a concubine because she refused to convert to Islam. And I think, good for her, good for that girl, but it means her life was very, very difficult as a result. 
Here's another wife, Durayra. Durayra, again, was a beautiful wife. She, just like Rehana, um, was loot. She was booty. She was uh, the one of the, the, the women that they had captured um, at a, 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 when the tribe went in and they were warring with other tribes. She was very beautiful. She was the wife of a chief. Now, this is what's sad. She tried to buy her freedom. And unfortunately, she caught Muhammad's eye. Aisha was immensely jealous of her because she was so beautiful. And when Muslims tried to say to me, well, Muhammad didn't marry these women out of lust, but to protect them because they were widowed, and also just it was alliance, I say to them, well, why were they always the most beautiful? Why were they always the most beautiful? And why was it that he killed the husbands um, first and then he took them for himself? Uh, Jiraira was was one of them. Then we have Safia. This is a very sad story. Safia uh, is a Jewess, and what had happened is um, Muhammad came in at the siege of Khaibar, and he uh, took Kinana, who was the chief, and Safia was his wife. Now she was young. All of these women were young. They were in their teens. And, um, and he t- took the chief and he tied him to the stake and he tortured them until they told, uh, told uh, um, Muhammad where the treasures were. And he had killed all of her male relatives or most of her real- male relatives. Now, this is a sad story because, and I've, I read this, I've read this with Muslims out in the public square in London and I've been surrounded by 20 or more Muslims as I opened up the biography of Muhammad and just read it verbatim so they could see it for themselves. And there was outcry from the Muslim um, crowd as they were gathering around me. But I wanted them to see how disturbing this, this man is and how he treated his, his wives. So we're going to unfortunately end on this little troubling story, but I think maybe that's important. Sometimes we need to be disturbed. So what happens is he, um, he ends up killing the, the, the husband, and then she's very beautiful. So he takes her for himself. Um, Al-Tabari, who is one of the historians of Islam in volume 8, talks about the story. And the story of Safiya is actually found in many of the, the, the histories and the, and the traditions of Islam. So uh, there is a man who had asked for Safiya. He said, Daiya had asked the messenger for Safiya when the prophet chose her for himself. So the men have come in. They've taken the women as loot. Uh, they've owned them now. They're slaves. And they're choosing which woman they want. Dia wanted it, wanted her. But then Muhammad saw her and he wanted her instead. So the apostle traded for Safiya by giving Dia her two cousins. So Safiya was captured, two other female cousins, cousins were captured, and then Muhammad then takes Safiya and gives uh, Dia the two women to, to replace to, uh, in trade for her. This is a slave trade. This is the slave trade. Muhammad is practicing it here. And it says the women of Khyber were distributed all among the Muslims. So it's just practice in the early years of Islam. Then he says to uh, Muhammad turns to Safiya and he says, if you choose Islam, um, then you can be freed. You'll be emancipated or manumated is the word that's used from Islamic, in Islamic texts. Manumated does not mean freedom, folks. Manumated means you have, um, you're, you're still under his power, but, you, but you, you're obviously not a slave. And so um, she, she accepted to turn to Islam and she became a wife instead, not just a concubine. So her treatment was a little bit easier. But read between the lines of this story. I'm just going to read the story to you. 
and it's from Al-Waqidi. And this is the story. When the messenger of God, uh, what had happened is he'd taken Safiya and then he went into the tent and he consummated the marriage that night. So this is the next morning. When the messenger of God set out the next morning, Abu Ayyub, one of his companions, pronounced takbir. It's just a, a cry of praise. And the prophet said, what is the matter, O Abu Ayyub? He replied, O messenger of God, you entered with this girl and you had killed her father, brothers, uncle, husband, and generally all of her relatives. And I fear that she would kill you. And the messenger of God laughed and spoke kind words to him. Can you read between the lines? This man, the friend of Muhammad, thought he was going to be dead by the morning because of what he had done to her family. Now, when a Muslim comes to you and says that, that Muhammad protected the widows and he protected the orphans and he took the women um, as a way of, of ennobling them and emancipating them, it is not upheld at all in the traditions of Islam. And all you have to do, folks, you open up the biography, you open up the hadith, and you just let the Muslim friend read it for themselves. And then they will see what Islam really does to women.